0: The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Mr. Ludwig, it appears, was of a very jealous disposition and had been suspicious of his wife for some time. A week ago, he paid a visit to the Tribune and desired an article written announcing that his wife had been out walking with two traveling men. He said the report was substantiated by neighbors. Mr. Ludwig seemed in a frenzy at the time. From the Potato Masher Murder, Death at the Hands of a Jealous Husband by Gary Censnacki. Welcome to the Murder Shelf Book Club. Cuddle up a little closer, loving my. God, will love and be my little clinging vine. Like to feel your cheeks so rosy. Like to make you comfy, cozy. Cause I love him. Welcome bad Murder Shelf Bookies, to Episode 30 on The Potato Masher Murder by Gary Cisnecki, Part 1, A Dinner of Embers. I'm back! I'm your host, Jill, and I have a true crime book club in the greater Philadelphia area and love discussing true crime, where I apply my 30 years' experience as a psychology educator who studied and taught about serial murder. I decided to turn my love of reading and fascination of true crime into a podcast, so I can share these stories with you. Each month or so, I will discuss a book that I've pulled off my murder shelf in the first two episodes. Not a boring timeline, I like to give you the story from the author's point of view. In the third episode of the series, called Second Cast, I will delve into the path not taken, the threads not pulled, add analysis and updates to the case that are compelling. These episodes tend to have a surprising quality to them. A quickie shout out to Australia. You are on fire listening to my podcast. Thanks a heap. Ta. I hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving and Hanukkah. My sabbatical is over. I figured myself out going solo from this point forward, and I should be on a solid foundation podcast wise. So I really do appreciate your patience. Also, for those of you following, this has been a complicated time as I've been through a medical ordeal myself. We totaled the car hubby set his hair on fire. He is okay. There were heroic efforts to avoid a flooded basement, leaving me with a concussion as I slipped and fell on the wet tile. Plus my sister, she has debated hospice care versus palliative care. She's been on kidney dialysis for over 10 years now with a host of other medical issues that have made this last year living with me really, really difficult. And I love her, but this has been a very, very tough situation. Caregivers are truly blessed people, and November was caretaker month. So, if you didn't get to make a donation and you missed it, you still can. There are links on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Now, in spite of it all, I want to assure you that we are all coping well with this, and I have a really strong support system. So, we're all moving forward. Oh, and there was a new beautiful baby in the family, so things are definitely looking up. So, I will have far fewer interruptions. Smooth sailing, putting out episodes, reading, writing, recording. I should be finding a nice pace now that the daily impact on me is over. What could possibly go wrong, as we always say? Just know I love doing this podcast, and I've missed my true crime outlet, and I really do feel I am back, and I will strive not to disappoint you. A big thank you to Kevin at the Jury Room Podcast, who has been a huge help, so supportive. So check out his podcast. It is really good, very informative, and a true crime delight. That's the jury room podcast out there on all the formats where you find podcasts. So thank you very much, Kevin. So book club, what delicious food do I have for you at book club today? Since we are in Indiana for a story, goat cheese is one of my great favorites. And this is always the best. Always looking for ease of preparation in these busy days. This uses just plain cream cheese, goat cheese, and fake mushrooms that you put in a food processor. Not too long because it can get liquidy. You wrap this mixture in saran wrap, form a ball, and refrigerate it for three hours. Honestly, this is the hardest part of the whole recipe, and this can be done the night prior. Then you roll the ball and chop walnuts and serve it with crackers, cheese, or whatever you want, and it is just wonderful. Now, the perfect wine pairing for this is Naked Wine's Sparkling Penelope, North Coast Blanc de Blanc, N.V. I did not go with the more obvious Champagne, which is a terrific compliment to a and goat. Instead, I really suggest you try this elegant, dry, sparkling wine, because it really delights the taste buds, very crisp, a lot of fruit in each sip. It comes from Northern California's Chardonnay region, where Penelope B. coster is well-regarded as a bubbly winemaker with a stellar reputation decades in the making. A real favorite of mine, you will enjoy this pairing with this fig and goat cheese book club snack. The recipe and wine details are also on the blog, so bon appetit! Now, we have a murder to look into. From the hard labor of author Gary Censnecki, now a retired journalist, Gary Cisnecki is the great-grandson of victim Cecilia Ludwig, and he worked at newspapers in four states during a 43-year career that include owning three community newspapers with his wife, Helen. He's received dozens of journalism awards for excellence from state, national, and international organizations. Gary won the Eugene Survey Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Society of Weekly Newspaper Editors and was inducted into the Missouri Press Association Hall of Fame in 2014. The Potato Master Murder: Death at the Hands of a Jealous Husband recently received the first place Walter Williams Award, the top award in the Missouri Writers Guild 2021 President Contest and was published by the Kent State University Press. Congratulations to Gary and Helen I enjoyed the potato-masher murder, Death at the Hands of a Jealous Husband, coming in at about 250 pages. Not only does it provide a fascinating deep dive into the events leading to the 1906 murder of 30-year-old Cecilia Henderson Hornberg Ludwig and its consequences, it is a stellar window into the society of the times, not only in Mishawaka, Indiana, but across America. Gary manages to bring legal text and historical documents to life while moving the story along. What he does make disturbingly clear was the brutality that Cecilia Ludwig was subject to in both of her marriages and how commonplace wife-beating was in the first decade of the 20th century. He points out that the polite, gender-neutral term domestic violence was not in use yet, but the term wife-beating was used in common parlance, regularly appearing in newsprint, describing a whole host of wife abuse and killings as they occurred. Gary strives to honestly evaluate the domestic situation and violence in the era, while at the same time honestly evaluating the Ludwig marriage individually. Sadly, why spouses still injured spouses today, the injured party has many more resources to turn to when a relationship goes belly up, and it still isn't easy. But Gary is also very truthful about this marriage when it would be far easier not to be and just skip over the social setting and get right into the murder. How did Gary come to write this story, a story that virtually no one in the family spoke about? Well, it wasn't easy. Gary barely persuaded his 94-year-old grandmother to speak about what she, Cecilia's granddaughter, knew. Which was not a lot, and much was misinformation. And this was only eight months before she passed away. So they... Just got in this interview under the wire. His mom had only known Charlie Hornberg, who was Cecilia's first husband, as her grandfather, and she knew nothing of Alvin Ludwig, age 36, the second husband, and the killer, as she had been born 13 years after Cecilia's murder. But it was just enough to set Gary off on a 23-year journey into seeking out the facts about Cecilia's fateful death. And here we have today's book one I really was drawn in while reading. Saying I enjoy the book about a brutal murder just seems wrong, right? But I know, you know, what I mean, murder bookies. I mean, that's the catch-22 we all face in true crime. Ghastly crime? I love it. But not really. Gary used the, quote, tool for historians, unquote, meaning the old archive newspapers, an expression he borrowed from the University of Missouri journalism professor, Dr. William H. Taft. This decade long odyssey of digging through microfiche and libraries and historical societies fortunately overlapped with the arrival of ancestry websites. Now, these opened up a whole new avenue of research possibilities. Cousins. You know, the cousins that nobody really knows who they are or where they fit into the tree, just that there's a branch hanging out there somewhere with a lot of leaves. <laughs> He found and interviewed these distant relatives, including those of the jealous husband, Alvin Ludwig. Amazingly, Gary found that everyone cooperated with his endeavor to tell this story. Man, I was impressed at universal cooperation, because that is rare in anything. I credit Gary's sincerity, kindness, which I recount to you as pleasant and personable. Great guy to work with. You want him to succeed, and clearly he has. One relative, Kent A. Burridge, whose grandmother was Cecilia's sister, Jean, learned the truth of what happened in the house where he was born decades later while visiting the cemetery in the 1980s. While examining family tombstones, cousin Judith shared the story of their great-aunt Cecilia and how she was murdered. Kent told Gary that there was a great deal of shame in the family about the murder, which became a taboo subject. Ludwig relative Gretchen L. Marks who happened to be a genealogist, learned about Cecilia's murder by doing her own research. And she told Gary, quote, As I read the newspaper articles, I go through all the emotions, knowing that Cecilia is a cousin. I became so outraged with so many questions and no full answers. And then I become saddened, wondering what her life may have been like if this hadn't happened to her. The what-if game. In the end, I would say that I mourned for her and what she had to endure. End quote. I do too, Gretchen. I think that anyone with a heart and empathy does. Gary's book begins with the Henderson sisters, Celia and Jean. They'd grown up in Kingsbury, Indiana, a quiet rural community, the kind where everyone knew each other. Cecilia's first marriage, which produced her son William and daughter Lyle Ellen, who in 1906 were 14 and 11 years old, was violent and ended in divorce. William lived with his father and Lyle split her time between her grandparents' home and the home Cecilia shared with second husband, Albin Ludwig. That sounds very 21st century to me, and frankly, I was somewhat surprised reading about this. Sister Jean Henderson was four years younger than Cecilia and married to a local Kingsbury boy. They moved to California, then Nevada, seeking their fortune, bringing their nine- and seven-year-old girl and boy, Lucy and Charlie, along the way. Neither Cecilia nor Jean's marriages were on solid foundation, with divorces looming as they found themselves currently living together in Mishawaka, Indiana in the summer of 1906. Murder would make one divorce moot. Alban and Cecilia lived on East Marion Street in Mishawaka, Indiana. While Alban had a spotty employment record, they were making payments on their two-story frame house with a covered porch, a feature I just love in a house. Built on narrow but deep lots, they only had five neighbors. The rest of the street was still vacant. It was common at the time to have summer kitchens in the backyard, separate from the houses, that were used for cooking in the summer hot months. The main house stayed cooler that way. That's how they survived without air conditioning, right? How smart. An alley ran behind their home with the Grand Trunk Western Railroad to the north of the alley. Just down a ways was Bridge Street, which crossed over the St. Joseph River, and then the train depot. Access to the train made it easy for Cecilia's mother to visit from Kingsbury, about 29 miles or 46 kilometers away. Imagine a growing city of Mishawaka, doubling its population from 1900 to 1910, from 56,000 to 11,900 people, building businesses, home construction underway. A point of unity for Misha Watkins was the local South Bend Daily Times, which ran stories that broke hearts, such as the death of little Luna Weiss, whose grandparents were babysitting her when she had a pair of scissors in her hand, stumbled off the veranda, tearing open her tender throat, killing her in this bizarre accident. Another less tragic story where some boys were playing near the residence of Joseph Lorenzi and tore a hole in his squirrel cage, allowing one of his prized pets to escape. The pet squirrel was later apprehended when a gentleman placed his hat over the fleeing rodent. Chief Police Benjamin F. Jarrett was making efforts to enforce the Sunday laws, keeping the saloons closed. In New Jersey back in the day, I remember the blue laws, though we were not the only state to use this term. It goes back to the color paper that the Puritans printed Sunday trade restrictions on, encouraging people and families to attend church services. Bergen County in New Jersey still has blue laws in 2021, and other areas do as well, but they vary wildly, involving alcohol sale and consumption, horse racing hours, car dealership sales, and more. A place that sold many products in Cecilia's time was the Kirkwood Market, which was advertising three-day sales on pickles, including dill, for ten cents a dozen, roast beef for eight cents a pound, sauerkraut for eight cents per quart, and chicken for 18 cents a pound. The big story of the day was the Atlanta Race Riot of 1906, then in day four, begun by the assassination of a county police officer and the fatal shooting of other white people. The South Bend Daily Times reported that, quote, 600 troops today surrounded a Negro settlement and arrested every Negro carrying arms or who had arms in their person or in their homes. In all, 300 were sent to jail. So, interesting times, the beginning of the 20th century. Yes, such was life in Mishawaka, mundane town life, not the murder capital of the world, but one subject to the tensions of the country beginning a new century under President Theodore Roosevelt. So you get a little bit of a sense of the town and the daily times. September 24th, 1906 was a warm fall evening where we begin with Alvin Ludwig stealthily sneaking along 2nd Street, spying on his wife Cecilia and her sister Jean. The ladies were speaking to a man named Ackerman. Heaven forbid they were speaking to a man, the hussies they are married, women. Remember, this is the early 20th century, not 20 years into the 21st century. Fresh on Alvin Ludwig's mind was the fight from the previous evening, witnessed by Jean and childhood friend Fred Young. Cecilia had threatened to move out. A definite signal that the five-year marriage to Alvin was on the rocks. Would she follow through? Who knew? How would Alvin respond? No one knew that either. The household's normal routine began around 3 a.m. when Alvin got up for work at the rubber plant, arriving there between 3 and 4 a.m., where he'd remain until noon. The day of the murder, September 25th, however, he had had a restless night and stayed home from work, staying in bed until 9 a.m. Cecilia, who slept in the spare room with her sister, had woken earlier. Daughter Lyle was already off to school, but Jean's two kids were home eating breakfast. Later, Albin would remark that Jean and Cecilia wouldn't speak to him and that there was no breakfast for him. But this was normal because he usually made his own breakfast at 3 a.m. and was off to work by the time they were up. This Tuesday, Albin went to the front room to read the newspaper. Jean had had enough of the tension and hostility in the house, and regardless of what Cecilia was doing, she was leaving. She went upstairs to pack her clothes. Cecilia informed Albin that she was leaving as well, and... Needed a trunk for her clothes, to which Albin replied, I will give you mine if you want one, but you are welcome to stay if you want to. No, Cecilia's mind was made up. She'd be leaving with what she believed was her due, and evidently she thought that was everything. Around eleven a.m., Cecilia asked Albin to go get some gasoline to fuel the cook stove in the summer kitchen, which was the norm of the day. This type of gasoline was heavier, cruder form of what we know today that cooks food faster and didn't make the kitchens ungodly hot and did not make soot like coal or wood stoves. Off went Albin stopping at Milton E. Robbins grocery store. He ran into his pal, Charles Patterson, who lived three houses down and they chatted for about ten minutes. Albin told him he was still upset about Cecilia speaking with that bridgeman, Ackerman. Then, Alban went to the Northside drugstore, picked up half a pint of brandy from druggist Lester Gittry, supposedly to make himself cough syrup. And he headed home. It was time for the noon meal, or dinner, as lunch was called then. Cecilia was already cooking the boiled meat and potatoes. Albin only put a little gasoline into cook stove, not wanting to bother her. Albin set off to try to sell his dog. After all... They were breaking up, and he wanted to find a home for him since he was a valuable animal. He swung by the Burkhardt home, speaking to Anna Burkhardt, who he'd really never met before. Evidently, Anna's husband had previously expressed interest in the dog, but Anna had no idea what Alvin was talking about. He priced the dog at $3, explaining that he was going away unexpectedly. Anna told him she really didn't want a dog just now. Walking back home... Albin briefly visited with another neighbor and his good friend Fred Metzler, who always took his side in arguments with Cecilia. Well, isn't that the number one job of a best friend? I, I think so, right? Albin told Fred someone was going to die. That gave Fred pause. Albin confessed to Fred that he was going to kill himself, and Fred begged him, Quote, "Don't, don't, don't get such a scary notion in your head, Ludwig." Alvin replied, I have got to. She's driving me crazy. Fred said, never mind. You don't have to do that. And then Fred went on trying to dissuade Alvin from committing suicide as they began to drink the brandy. We'll just go see some lawyer, said Fred, suggesting a cousin of his, Charlie Metzger. And by the time Albin headed home, the brandy was gone. Back at the house, Jean was packed and was off arranging transportation for their trunks, hers and Cecilia's, to South Bend, Indiana. Dinner began, and Cecilia fetched Alvin a cup of coffee, which he drank. He noticed it had a particular taste about it, kind of sour and, and bitter. Cecilia left the table and went to lie down, and the children went off to play on the front porch. Shortly thereafter, Alvin began to feel ill, wanting to vomit. Going out back, he found a slop jar. That's an earthen bowl with a handle, and it had been once used as a chamber pot before the blessed development of toilets. Next-door neighbor Catherine Brand noticed Alvin, and they bowed to each other as was their very formal custom. Returning inside, he placed the slob jar at the foot of the stairs, and he went to sit outside on the front steps, hoping that fresh air would revive him. He was seen by a painter working nearby. Jean's kids, his niece and nephew, came over asking for candy money. Overhearing the request, Cecilia, who was inside, shouted for Alvin to not be stingy and give Lucy and Charlie some money and Albin complied. Fresh air failing, Albin went upstairs, lying across the upstairs bed. Mind working, he began to wonder about the coffee and if Cecilia had poisoned him. She'd threatened to do so more than once. What would happen if he died? Wait, wait a second, full stop. He had insurance and he sat bolt upright. Insurance, wait, where's the policy? He got up searching for the policy issued by the Knights and Ladies of Columbus for a thousand dollars pay a pull to Cecilia on Alvin's death. No, 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 no. With them breaking up, he wanted to change the beneficiary to his mother. All right, that makes sense. Normally, the policy was kept in his dresser, but it wasn't there. Where? Alvin asked himself. Went to the closet, where, recall before dinner, Cecilia had been packing her clothes. It was difficult to see without a window there, so Alvin got a kerosene lamp to cast some light so he could see if the policy was in his wife's trunk and he was on his knees going through Cecilia's trunk when she came into the room. Albin tells us that Cecilia asked him, Have you made up your mind to give me all the stuff? End quote. He told her she could have half of everything, but she insisted on all of it. He insisted that she would get what she'd get according to the law, and Cecilia began to curse. Quote, You son of a bitch. I will swear out a warrant that you tried to kill me, and I will get it all anyhow. End quote. Alvin told her to go right ahead. It was then Cecilia noticed that he was going through her trunk and asked what he was doing. He said that he was looking for the insurance policy, and she began swearing at him again, quote, You son of a bitch, I will fix you anyhow, end quote. And if Alvin's version of this whole interaction is to be believed, those may be Cecilia's final words. Cecilia Henderson Hornberg Ludwig did not leave the room alive. Hello, and welcome to the jury room. I'm your host, Kevin, and I will be covering anything true crime, from serial killers to cold cases and everything in between. The Jury Room Podcast is available on most major podcasting platforms. Don't forget to like, subscribe, follow anywhere you can. Stay safe, and thanks for listening. The first sign that something was wrong at the Ludwig house happened between 1.30 and 2.30 p.m. Out on her back porch, Alice McNabb heard screaming, which alerted her, and she saw smoke coming out of the Ludwig house. Little Lucy Ellsworth, who minutes earlier had been given coins by Alvin to go get candy, called to Alice. Alice ran to the cottage being painted down the street and alerted the workers of the fire. Painter David Hull rushed the scene bringing carpenters James France and Milton Carter, who found the front door locked. Running back to the cottage where he was working, Dave Hull fetched a ladder, ran back, and put it up against the porch roof. Just then, Robert Schallenberger, who lived three blocks away, having heard the fire alarm, arrived. Seeing a man climbing up the ladder, Schallenberger ran around to the back door, entering through the kitchen. Other neighbors were arriving quickly now. A number had gathered in the back room of the house, because, you know, I'd go hang around inside a burning house. Never, said the fireman's daughter. Schellenberg ran down to the cellar, noticing smoke and smoldering paper on the cement ledge. By now, the fire alarm call box 43, six blocks away, had notified the Mishawaka Fire Department and Fire Chief Albert Beisey arrived on the scene by 2.30 p.m. Beisey wasn't the first fireman at the house. He had kicked down the front door. He stated, I went up the stairs and I found the fire in the closet off the front room on the east side. I had the water turned on and put the nozzle into the roof because the fire was burning a hole in the roof. Then I noticed a person in the closet. A woman lay inside, right across the front door. She was all up in a cramped position. Her head was lying against the corner of the closet. Her legs were drawn up and her arms, they were in about the same position. Her clothing had been burned off, except for her corset stays. Her flesh looked just about like a real hard-baked chicken. No clothes. The woman was dead. And that is how Cecilia was found. What a description. Oh my god, the imagery it's just it's just too terrible. So meanwhile, the three men who climbed up the ladder came through the window, found Alvin unconscious and bloodied in the bedroom off the closet. One of them, Alvia J. Bruce, who owned a meat market a block and a half away, explained. he was just in front of the windows. A dresser was immediately at the side of the closed door against the wall. Ludwig's body was almost against the dresser. The other man and I lifted Ludwig up, and we took him out the window down in the yard, and I laid him on the ground. I found Ludwig bleeding quite freely from his wounds, and thinking it would probably, the loss of blood, be the loss of life. I bound the wounds. End quote. Fortunately, Alvia Bruce had spent four of his six years in the Army Hospital Corps, so he had some knowledge of how to treat Albin. Would Bruce's actions save Albin's life? What was happening in the Ludwig home? The neighbors were abuzz with folks congregating. The fire was eventually contained. Ludwig was taken back inside to shield him from the prying eyes of the hundreds of onlookers who had gathered at this point. Laid down... Albin finally vomited, his stomach still upset from the coffee. He was taken to the hospital by ambulance, alive but unconscious. Without cell phone videography that occurs so matter-of-factly today, the media was still all over this story. The South Bend Times, in its rush to be the first to go to print, identified Albin as Alvin. And I admit it, I am thinking about chipmunks. I just can't help it. <laughs> and the media transposed the numerals on his address on East Marion Street, sacrificing accuracy to win the publication race. Now this caused confusion from 1906 all the way through the printing of this book in July 2020, if you can believe it, which is why Gary wrote that the Ludwigs live on East Marion Street without indicating the house number. The Mishawaka citizens read in the newspaper that Alvin Ludwig had cut his throat slashed his wrists, with blood gushing everywhere, forming crimson pools in the carpet, with him lying there, near death. There was evidence of a struggle, and once the fireman opened the closet door, the body of Mrs. Ludwig was there, flesh burned to a crisp. The only things recognizable was her wedding ring and corset stays. Evidently, after quarreling that morning, Alvin had killed his wife, threw her into the closet, set it afire, slashed himself in a suicide attempt, and the story was just electrifying. What author Gary Cisnecki observes is that most journalists will use the word alleged as a qualifier adjective when describing possible criminal conduct in their stories, as we have likely all noticed. And in 1906... Alleged was only used when referring to Albin's alleged drinking to excess on occasion, not regarding the murder or attempted suicide. So one headline reads, Man Kills Wife. I mean, that is a pretty damning proclamation without the slightest nuance or caveat or hesitation. News stories also revealed that a week earlier, Mr. Ludwig had come into the office of the Tribune wanting an article to be written announcing to the world that his wife had been out with traveling men, an observation substantiated by neighbors. Albin had been in a frenzy at the time of the request, which certainly was evidence of a jealous streak in the man. The traveling man comment, I believe, refers to traveling salesmen who go door-to-door selling various products. Not familiar with the concept? Well, you can see the handy-dandy salesman on an I Love Lucy episode to get an idea. It is on YouTube, and I've linked it to my blog. It's really amusing. So, back to the emergency. Injured, bloody, dying Albin is rushed to Epwith Hospital, where medical personnel work to staunch the bleeding and to save his life. Cecilia's body is taken to St. Joseph County Mortuary for an autopsy to be conducted by doctors Charles Stroop and Edgar Doan, the coroner. From the postmortem, the doctors found that her body is terribly charred, but they also found a very jagged scalp wound on the left side of her head. On Celia Betty J. Ludwig's death certificate, they ruled that the immediate cause of death was suffocation by smoke and shock from being burned. Coroner Dr. Henry C. Holzendorf went to the crime scene, where he noted the charred clothing, a trunk, a can that could possibly have held kerosene, and a potato masher. That is an odd place to find a cooking utensil in an upstairs bedroom closet. At some point, as the chaotic scene unfolded, two women arrived by train. Of all people, Cecilia's mother, Mrs. Christina Henderson, and her sister, Cecilia's aunt, from Kingsbury. Oh, my God, what terrible timing. They got off at the depot nearest to Alban and Cecilia's home. Mrs. Henderson arriving at the house having no idea that her daughter has been murdered and certainly not how only after viewing the charred remains herself did mrs henderson and her sister truly understand what was happening around them breaking down into abject grief and sobbing i cannot even imagine you come to visit and you walk into this i i can't even imagine it that just it's just it just gets worse the next day Mrs. Henderson had her daughter's body sent to Kingsbury to the undertaker's Weir and Sybert. The Baptist funeral and service was brief, and Cecilia was buried in the Kingsbury Cemetery, as reported in the LaPorte August Bulletin. The stone that marks her grave reads, Mother, Cecilia H. Hornberg, not using the name Ludwig, 1876-1906 they dropped the Ludwig name entirely. Now this isn't all that uncommon after a horrendous murder. If you recall the Shanann, Bella, Cece, and Nico Watts case, murdered by husband dad, Chris Watts, in 2018, their gravestone drops the Watts name as well, bearing Shanann with her maiden name, Rutzik, and the children with their first names. So I completely understand that choice. This story would be the talk of the immediate Area towns, Mishawaka, South Bend, Elkhart, where Albin Ludwig grew up, for months. In Laporte, the newspapers latched onto the story like a dog with a bone. Sometimes there were actual facts in the stories, and sometimes, yeah, not so much. They were pure fake news designed to be sensational and sell newspapers, even then, in 1906. The Ludwig marriage was dissected. Rumors based on anonymous sources were printed one day and dismissed the next day. As you move outward further from Mishawakwa, like in concentric circles, the stories were reprinted and reprinted again, sometimes with attribution, often without. The common denominator, the word gruesome, spelled G-R-E-W-S-O-M-E, not G-R-U-E-S-O-M-E, so grew, gruesome. Eventually, both stories came to settle on a few brief facts, but dependent on Alvin's version of the confrontation. That Cecilia caught Alvin snooping through her packed trunk, that the murder weapon was a potato masher, giving the rise to the intriguing title of the book, and that's what we have. The other witness is dead. By the way, a potato masher is a long-handled wooden tool with a thick, cylindrical bottom sort of resembles a knob end of a baseball bat, so swung like a mallet, a potato masher could be wielded as a deadly weapon. South Bend Daily Times reporter Peter Young, who was inside the house shortly after the murder, wrote, quote, Because of its horrors and the shocking features, this case is without parallel in Mishawaka. That their life has been a not-too-happy one seems reflected in the repeated expressions of the husband. He has been employed as a shoemaker in the plant of the Mishawakwa Woolen Manufacturing Co., and fellow employees declare that he appeared to hate everyone, perhaps also himself. Just what led to the development of this particular personal characteristic cannot be definitely stated, yet it is alleged that the woman was in a measure responsible. It is known that the man who committed the terrible deed of Tuesday afternoon is possessed of an almost ungovernable temper that he was insanely jealous of his wife. In that morning, he declined to go to work, and a child related to the couple is said to have ran out of the house just after dinner and asked the neighbors to protect Mrs. Ludwig because he was abusing her. Soon after, the flames were seen in the house." The residents were at Twitter that something was wrong at dinner, a.k.a. lunch, because few of the dishes had been cleared and none had been washed. Young also wrote that Albin likely struck Cecilia in the dining room, followed her upstairs where he used the potato masher on her, beating her insensible. He must have then placed her limp form in the closet, slashed his wrists, hoping to sever arteries. Failing in this... He probably went downstairs to get kerosene, not gasoline. The walls showed marks of bloody fingerprints and blood splattered in clumps and stops. This indicates that Ludwig had become faint, seeking support by placing his hands on the wall, leaving marks to bear silent witness to the work of the enraged killer. A tin can, which held about a pint of kerosene, was found in the room with the victim's remains not far from the bloodied razor he'd used upon himself. Didn't the coroner, Dr. Holtzendorf, say the can he'd found had held kerosene? I believe he indicated that it may have murder bookies. This is a fairly damning piece of evidence, no matter what Alvin might say, given he has a vested interest in avoiding punishment. Newspapers update the public on Alvin Ludwig's medical status regularly. He survives his serious wounds, so far, struggling with broken sleep. Is this an indicator of a guilty conscience? Some say so. Within a few days, under direction of the coroner, a warrant for his arrest was issued for first-degree murder, that is, premeditated murder. The media frenzy increases. Some speculated that Cecilia's throat had been cut. It had not been. The Mishawaka Enterprise published weekly, did not include such errors since it had additional time to rule out some of these wild notions versus facts. Gary does a remarkable job of comparing and contrasting the quality and quantity of reports, zeroing in on accuracy versus this type of speculation. Not just absurd reporting that drove the interest in the story. You have to read the book, Murder Bookies. You really do. I can only scratch the surface here. You know I always recommend that you read the books because the books I choose are really the cream of the crop. Truly. So, Alvin Ludwig is charged with first-degree murder. He is placed under 24-hour guard at Ipwich Hospital when he attempts suicide during the changing of the guards. He heads for the window, intending to jump to his death as the story seeks death leap, screams out of the South Bend Daily Times and has reverberated outward in those concentric ring communities I mentioned. Or, did he? Because the South Bend Tribune reports that that never happened. So this one remains one of these 50-50 shots at Beth, so I just go eeny-meeny-miny-moe on whether to believe that actually happened or not, because I just don't know. Now, other theories float around about the state Cecilia was in when she met her end, and that's I, oh gosh, I don't even know how you want to think about that one. It's just too awful to consider. It had been generally accepted that she was unconscious when the match was struck and the flames spread. However, Albin may have shoved her into the closet, doused her with the the oil, kerosene, gasoline, whatever it was, lit the match, slammed the door, and made sure it was shut while she was still conscious. Police Chief Jarrett considered whether Cecilia was stooped over the trunk Packing to leave, when Albin started the fire, and that caused her to shrink back literally seconds later, unable to fight for her life. But later that idea would be countered by Albin insisting that he was the one looking in the trunk, searching for the insurance policy when Sepia came into the bedroom, reversing who was actually where. Okay, it was even speculated that Cecilia was responsible for her own death. Seriously, I just can't even That in the midst of her argument with Albin, in a state of, quote, mental frenzy, and in the moment of total depression and bitterness of spirit, committed suicide, end quote. A frenzied depression, huh? All right, well, that's a new one to me. The drive to sell newspapers and to make a buck can truly drive decency from the agenda entirely when it comes to making decisions, whether in the 20th or in the 21st century. Wow. How low can you get? But, alright, I had to look into this one. Suicide by self-immolation does occur, and it should be addressed since the accusation was made. I recall photos of the monk Thich Quang Duc in Vietnam, in Saigon, setting himself on fire to protest the persecution of Buddhists by the South Vietnamese Diem regime in 1963. I briefly looked into this because, you know, I get hooked and this is what I do. I start doing research. So a study done in 2007-2008 on self-immolation by Ali Reza Ahmadi for the National Library of Medicine found that self-burning comprises 0.37% and 40% of total burn setter admissions in the world. A huge gulf there. So it really depends on where you are in the world. In developed countries... Okay, it represents 0.06 to 1% of all suicides. So a tiny percentage, really less than 1%. But in Iran, very specifically, Iran, Iran is the self immolation capital of the world. Depending on the region, between 4.1% and 36.6% of admissions in the Iranian burn centers are for self immolation. So depending on where you reside in Iran, and 9.5% of attempted suicides, which is again a chunk of the attempted suicides, and 25 to 40% of successful suicides were via deliberate self-burning, frightening numbers. Worldwide, about 80% of hospitalized self-immolation patients die, and today this is very much viewed as a mental health issue. Uh, this Ahmadi study does a deep dive in the case of Iran for obvious reasons, but it gives us a sense of how rare this suicide method is, thank God. And I believe that those suggesting Cecilia tried to commit suicide were again promoting pure sensationalism chasing the buck. So back to the real issues in the Cecilia and Alvin murder case. According to the Tribune, patrolman Lauren Faust was assigned to guard Ludwig and reportedly, Albin asked him, quote, When is my wife coming to see me? She should have been here before this. End quote. Huh. So, didn't he grasp what had happened to Cecilia? Was Albin in denial? Was his memory impaired? Because severe trauma can do that. Or was just a very crafty Albin building his defense? Stay tuned. Four days after the horror, a preliminary hearing on the murder charge was set and the Eckhart Truth reported that Ludwig would probably enter a plea of insanity. So there you are, it looks like he's building his defense, right? Yet, at the time, Alvin didn't even have a defense attorney, and his family had not even made an appearance. Alright, there was further delay when Alvin contracted pneumonia, called lung fever at the time, plus there were fears he was developing gangrene, both of which could prove fatal at the time. There are no antibiotics. Fun fact... In 1928, after returning to work at St. Mary's Hospital in London after a two-week vacation, scientist Alexander Fleming noticed that a petri dish containing staphylococcus culture was left on a lab bench and never placed in the incubator. Oops! Somehow, in preparing the culture, a penicillin mold spore had accidentally been introduced into the medium, perhaps floating up a stairwell from the lab below where various molds were being cultured. The conditions during Fleming's absence permitted both the bacteria and the mold spores to grow, and what eventually was noted is that the mold largely inhibited the growth of the staphylococcus culture, and that causes boils and infections in human beings. While it would take another decade or so to recognize the importance of this, penicillin had been discovered. In 1945, Fleming and his colleagues. Howard Florey and Ernest Chain would win the Nobel Peace Prize in Medicine for their discovery of antibiotics. The miracle drug, known as as penicillin was called, was not in common use until the mid-1940s, so it would be of no use to Alvin Ludwig in 1906 because it hadn't been discovered. right. there was also a significant amount of discussion about Alvin getting the death penalty, although this would be a moot point if he died of his self inflicted injuries. He was also reported to be threatening to starve himself to death, refusing all food except a cup of tea. The media managed to take Sunday off from reporting on the sad saga of Alvin and Cecilia, but just in time to spread new revelations from Monday's newspaper, the public would discover that the evening before the murder, Jean and Cecilia had been in town and stopped at the Northside drugstore to refill an iodine and glycerin prescription, a medicine that Cecilia used for her feet. The bottle was found in the house, which makes sense, because, you know, I keep my medicines in my house too. Mm-hmm. However, if ingested... This can be toxic. The papers asked, had Albin attempted suicide by drinking this poison too? Was that why he vomited on that awful day? Was this further evidence that he was really deranged in a state of mental desperation? Journalist Peter Young speculated that Albin's complaints of a sore throat supported the poisoning theory. But which one? That Cecilia had poisoned him or that Albin had poisoned himself? In the county where Cecilia's family lived, the LaPorte-Argus Bulletin reported that Charlie Ellsworth, not quite seven years old, Alvin's, little nephew, was in all likelihood a witness to the tragedy, Why quote. While Charlie was specifically not named in the story, neighbors had found Charlie in the kitchen when they came to the boning house. When asked what was going on, he stated, quote, uncle is bleeding, end quote, or something to that effect. Charlie had had to have been upstairs at one point, or Alvin downstairs. Hmm. Still in 1906, the beginning of October, Gustav and Minnie Ludwig visited Alvin in the hospital. This is Alvin's brother and sister-in-law, reportedly, so he could ask their forgiveness for past issues that had created dissension between the brothers. Evidently, Gustav and Minnie were told there was little hope of Albin's recovery, and the Eckhart Daily Review wrote that Albin would only last a few more days at best. The surprise of this week was Cecilia's mother, Christina Henderson, visiting Albin with a child in tow, which caused a whole new flurry of inquiry. The child was likely Lyle, Cecilia's now motherless daughter. With Minnie Ludwig, Mrs. Henderson spoke to Albin for a short time. She asked him how the house had caught fire, at least according to the South Bend Tribune, which wrote, He did not give her much satisfaction. She treated him kindly and did not irritate him. Ludwig may yet die without making confession. While a confession would have been nice, Mrs. Ludwig actually went to see Albin to find out if he would permit her to be appointed administrator of Cecilia's estate, which he did give her his consent. Reports of Alvin's health struggle would slowly dwindle over the next weeks, with a temporary sense of normalcy resuming in Mishawaka. October 17, 1906, Alban's 23rd day of hospitalization. He was supposedly gaining rapidly, and within days would be placed behind bars in the county jail. State Attorney George A. Kurtz filed formal charges and would seek the death penalty. It wasn't until days later, October 29th, that Ludwig finally went to jail, being carried in a chair after more confusing, contradictory articles. St. Joseph County Jail, built only in 1897, was a new state-of-the-art building, costing $40,000 and was three stories high, with cells to accommodate 96 prisoners, with a hospital ward, which was likely the cause of confusion as to which hospital Albin was being housed in when. Then November 2nd, a crime occurred that pushed the murder of Cecilia Ludwig right off the pages. The Enterprise reported, quote, "...a dastardly deed. That of the mayor of Mishawaka's windows had been smashed by a cowardly hoodlum." Say it ain't so, oh the humanity, broken windows. The mayor promised a crackdown on the violation of city ordinance... And it had definitely begun by November 11th, when the police tricked one hotel that dared to sell liquor on Sunday. Remember, that is a big no-no. It seems that police chief Ben Jarrett followed a group of men through the back door of the Milburn house with Officer Faust, who I mentioned earlier, who guarded the main entrance. About a dozen men were being served alcohol, and they promptly became verclimate or upset. hotel Burton Fillion was arrested. The case came before Judge E.E. E. Long and defense attorney Joseph Talbot advised Fillion to plead guilty and he was fined $25 by Judge Long. Seems Mishawakwa was going to hell in a handbasket. Broken windows. Drinking and selling alcohol on Sunday. Murders. Ugh. November 19th. Albin Ludwig was carried to court on a cot, and his counsel, Will G. Craybill and Samuel Parker, entered a not-guilty plea. Does that remind anyone of Golden State Killer Joseph D'Angelo being wheeled into the courthouse in California in his wheelchair, feigning weakness and fragility? Nah, eh, whatever. I mean, I do believe Albin was recovering, but D'Angelo was totally playing it up for the cameras. Well, anyway, Craybill, or WG as he was known, um, was working for Anderson, Parker, and Craybill Law Firm in South Bend. WG had been hired by Brother Gustav almost two months after Cecilia's death. So it does appear that the bad blood between the brothers, which was about money, and whether Gustav was unwilling to put up cash for Albin or he didn't have the funds himself, The initial agreement between the defense and the Ludwig family was cheap. The contract did not have the firm looking for witnesses to determine who knew what, when, or where. Instead, Gustav and Mishawakwa attorney Clinton Graybill, not W.G., was going to do the footwork for the defense themselves. So W.G. Graybill and Clinton Graybill were from Wabash, Indiana but were not closely connected on that family tree. Some of those cousins, the branches, you don't quite know where they connect. Yeah. The Craybills and Parker had read about the crime in the newspaper. They still needed time to prepare for a trial. It was decided by December that the Ludwig trial and an unrelated murder of a hermit named John Perkins by William Jean Cook would be postponed for a time. You'll hear more about the William Eugene Cook murder case In second cast, Cecilia's Curse, episode 32 of the Potato Masher Murder Trilogy, Albin Ludwig's murder trial would not move as quickly as William Cook's. The press reported in February 1907 that the docket of the St. Joseph County Circuit Court was the largest in the history of St. Joseph County and would certainly last right up through the May term. Besides Albin Ludwig, another murder case was being tried, that of Day Armstrong, who killed a, quote, wanton woman in South Bend Hotel and then attempted suicide, end quote, according to the Eckhart Daily Review. The Ludwig and Armstrong cases were similar in many ways, including the aforementioned suicide by stabbing themselves after killing a woman. Both were also not expected to recover at first. Albin's victim was his wife. Day's victim was a woman he'd been drinking and carousing with at the Grandview Hotel. Both Albin and Day Armstrong were being held in the hospital ward of St. Joseph County Jail. Yes, this is six months after Cecilia's murder and still in the hospital. Albin is using crutches to move around, and Armstrong was convalescing according to new accounts. Neither would say anything about the charges, supposedly on advice from their attorneys. Finally, February seventh, nineteen o seven, 1907, the grand jury of six men convened three from Portage County, one from Madison. Clay and Lincoln Townships. The examination of the witnesses began day one as Prosecutor Joseph E. Talbert, newly elected and one month on the job, and Deputy Prosecutor C. L. Metzger presented the case. This Deputy Prosecutor C. L. Metzger was the same lawyer, cousin Charlie Metzger, that shortly before the murder Albin's good friend Fred Metzger had suggested Albin seek advice from regarding Celia and separating. Same guy, small world. Well, these grand jurors were busy because on Friday, February 5th, they returned 22 indictments, including a five-count indictment charging Al Vin with a V, R. Ludwig, with the alleged murder of his wife, Cecilia. Twenty-six witnesses testified. Most would also testify at the trial. The first count charged that Ludwig had done something in some way unknown and murdered Cecilia. The second charge said that Alvin murdered Cecilia by striking her with a certain deadly weapon unknown. The third charge was that he murdered his wife by assaulting her somehow with unknown weapons causing her to die from this assault. The fourth count charged Cecilia died by Alvin striking her with a potato masher, a deadly weapon. The fifth charge that Ludwig had killed Cecilia by feloniously setting fire to and burning his house, mortally burning her. The grand jury had covered all possibilities in this case, and Alvin Ludwig pled not guilty to all five counts. So after six months of sensational headlines, rumor mongering, speculation, anyone who even vaguely heard of the Ludwig murder arson, suicide attempt wanted to know what happened on September 25th, and who were Albin and Cecilia, remained fixated on the case, which might now would probably include most of Indiana. The only witnesses to the events were the defendant himself and possibly Charlie Eckert, son of Gene, but at seven he was way too young to testify. The trial would be held in the third courthouse of St. Joseph County, built between 1896 and 1899. It's again another relatively new building. And before the trial began, Ludwig's lawyers tried for a plea bargain. They said that Alvin would plead guilty to a reduced charge of manslaughter. Now, if you were prosecuting the case, would you agree to that? No. I I wouldn't, and neither did they. They sounded a little like Yoda and looked with disfavor upon this proposal, confident of a first-degree murder conviction, as was reported in the Eckhart Weekly Review. Next, it was reported that the defense asked for a change of venue. No shock there. I would also. Come on, with all this extensive newspaper coverage, the rumor mill going full tilt, the whole town believes that Alvin killed Cecilia, hitting her, lighting her body on fire. No self-respecting defense attorney isn't going to request a change of venue. But was the motion actually ever filed because the trial was held exactly where it was in St. Joseph County? So I don't know why, quite what to make of that. Two other motions followed. One was to quash the indictment entirely because Alvin's name was misspelled Alvin. That was overruled. And the second motion was dismissed on the grounds that none of the counts charged the defendant with an offense against the public. That was overruled too. What the heck? The offense was certainly against Cecilia who lost her life. But so I think this is just a ploy of defense attorneys defencing. But yeah. No, that didn't work. So on April 2nd, Ludwig waived arrangement and entered a plea of not guilty, not innocent by reason of insanity, which had been speculated about. And after days of the papers predicting the trial would begin today, no, no, tomorrow, no, definitely today, it actually began on Monday, April 22nd, 1907, and it was with the greatest difficulty that they found 12 men acceptable to both the prosecution and the defense The state, using five of the peremptory charges, defense 11, peremptory charges dismiss a potential juror without any particular reason, as opposed to a bias a juror might have, like he worked with Cecilia's father, so he's biased against the defendant. All right, what was important, though, to the state is that the jury be favorable to capital punishment because they were seeking the death penalty. And realize this is also before 1920, because women were not permitted to serve on Indiana juries until after 1920. So they were all 12 men on the jury. So Prosecutor Joseph Talbot, he is in his 30s, a small, wiry, smooth-shaven man. He was joined by Deputy Prosecutors Burl J. Kramer and Isaac Kane Parks, who shared questioning of the state's witnesses. Talbot would do the cross-examination of all defense witnesses himself, so we're going to hear a lot from him. Defense attorney was Samuel Parker, one of the best-known lawyers in northern Indiana. He was also a former senator, and not a man to be particular about his dress. Parker was old enough to have gray hair, little bald spot, smooth-shaven, blue eyes. He was a man who made very emphatic declarations. He and W.G. Grable made up the legal defense and they shared direct examination of defense witnesses, with Parker handling nearly all the cross-examination of state witnesses. Now, Joseph Talbot is an up-and-coming guy beginning to make a name for himself. He's being praised in the Indianapolis Star in late January 1907 as, quote One of the youngest men who has held the office during the last quarter century, He's a man who really put the lid on South Bend after the city had been known throughout the West as one of the most wide open towns in the state. End quote. So elected to office, Talbot announces that the laws must be obeyed. Violators heard this and they kinda of chuckled, and winked, and, you know, kept doing what they were doing as usual. But undeterred, Talbot sends his constables out through South Bend with orders to raid gambling establishments. Talbot was not speaking in platitudes during his election. He was actually sincere. He is a law and order kind of guy. And by 1906, the current climate in South Bend reflected his crackdown. Laws, especially those in reference to saloons, were being enforced. And naturally, this is going to make some folks unhappy. The judge hearing the case is Circuit Judge Walter A. Funk, 49, distinguished, thin-faced guy, styling style and bushy mustache, was very popular at the time, and he is a self-made man. He began his law practice back in 1886. He ran for office in 1892 and lost, and eight years later, he is now a sitting judge and he is up for re-election. The trial opening statements have been lost to history, but Gary could surmise what Talbot and Parker's theories of the case were from his research. The prosecution's contention. A quarrel between Albin and Cecilia began downstairs, and the defendant, quote, seized the potato masher, sending the deceased running from him upstairs. He followed her, struck her on the head with the potato masher, making a jagged wound found after death on the back of her head, knocking her out. He dragged her into the closet, cut his wrists and throat with a razor, got blood on his hands, went downstairs to get the oil to throw in the closet, and upon his wife's body with the view of starting a fire there and destroy evidence of his crimes. The bloody handprints going downstairs in fits and starts supported this perspective. Or did it? The scenario painted by the defense differed, of course. In their version, Cecilia found Albin searching for the insurance policy in the trunk, and they quarreled. Cecilia swore she would, quote, fix him anyway, And she struck him with the potato masher, which she brought with her from the kitchen, anticipating trouble. Albin warded off her blows, set the lamp down or let it fall, got to his feet and caught Cecilia by the throat. In his rage, he jammed her head against one of the hooks in the closet, creating a scalp wound on the back of her head. He choked her until she collapsed and sank down into death. At worst, Albin was guilty of manslaughter not first-degree homicide. Which view would prevail at trial? Wait and see. And that is it for episode 30, A Dinner of Embers on the Potato Masher Murder by Gary Cinsnacki. Coming up next, we're going to get into the trial of Alvin Ludwig and his bid for acquittal. The battle is waged by the prosecution and defense, and each witness will hold a piece of the puzzle. But what is the picture that is being constructed? Could Albin get away with Cecilia's murder, or would he get the death penalty? Either seems possible as we go through each stage of the trial laid out by author Gary Sincenecki. And my choice for our next book is The Bike Path Killer by Mackie Becker and Michael Beebe. Bike Path Killer terrorized the Buffalo, New York area for over 14 years, mercilessly raping and killing his prey and eluding law enforcement at every turn. And then he seemed to vanish. Was he done? Locked up? Dead? Read along with me and cuddle up because this is a page turner that left me so uneasy. Oh my god, what a story. Murder bookies, thank you for listening. Please leave a five-star review and buy me a cup of coffee if you can. Yes, we're now on Buy Me a Coffee, backslash, capital M-U-R-D-E-R, capital S-H-E-L-F, capital B small K, capital C, B, Murder Shelf Book Club site. The link is on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. Both will be ready to help me grow my podcast and make new murder bookies. Reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or shoot me an email at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. i would love to hear from you. Follow me or subscribe to my show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Amazon, Stitcher, Podbean, let my episodes pop right into your feed. Until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading, trust your gut. Happy holidays, Murder Bookies, enjoy. Source material and snack and drink information for the Potato Masher Murder Trilogy is found on my blog, too. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosina and lyrics by Otto Harback.